Well, good evening to everybody here. It is certainly lovely to be with you in the room, and it is good to be with you at home too as we gather around God's Word together. Well, as Stuart has said, we are concluding our sermon series, Abraham, God's First Disciple. And today's section of Genesis, which you'll see is two and a half chapters, we're given a conclusion to the Abraham narrative. First, in chapter 23, we read about the death of Sarah. Then in chapter 24, we read about how Isaac gets a wife, Rebecca. And then in chapter 25, we'll read about the death of Abraham. Now, this section of Genesis is written as an epilogue of the Abraham story, and so I'm going to preach it that way. So it'll be slightly different to our normal format, where we take a smallish chunk of text and take a deep dive into the passage. Instead, today, I'm going to glance at some small sections of each of these chapters, 23, 24, and 25, and see what we can learn from God's first disciple, Abraham, as he comes to the end of his good old age, 175. At the beginning of the series, we saw Abraham called by God to a new land, receiving promises of great blessing and a big family. Even at the beginning of the story, Abraham is an old man, and he has an elderly, barren wife. So there's great intrigue as you read this story as to how God would fulfill his promises. And at times, wondering how God could possibly make good on his word, Abraham took matters into his own hands. But even in these moments when Abraham failed, God's promises were never endangered. Abraham and Sarah did receive a son, Isaac. And Abraham, as a disciple, has displayed, hasn't he, spectacular faith. We saw that last week. And some pretty epic failures. But haven't we seen over and over again that despite this, God has remained faithful? And this epilogue helps us see that as Abraham and Sarah's lives come to an end, the promises of God will still continue to advance. It transitions from uh, Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah, and God's promises are partially fulfilled. And seeing them passed down, we're given great confidence that things will advance in the right direction, furthering God's purposes according to his promises. And we also see that Abraham has learnt to fully trust God. He had 175 years to practice, but he does get there. And of course, this is where I'm going to head for us too. Our lives as disciples are anchored first on trusting in God's faithfulness to us. So let me zero in on a few little sections of this big passage to look at how trusting in God's faithfulness Abraham is led to total commitment, active participation, and then passing it on. I'm going to hand over to Beck now, who's going to bring us the first Bible reading from chapter 23. So if you're at home, you can grab your Bibles while she comes up and flick to Genesis chapter 23. Thanks, Beck. The first part of the Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah 
and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. And now picking up at verse 16. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, were deeded to Abraham as his property, in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Beck. Well, Sarah died at the age of 127 in Hebron in the land of Canaan. Isn't that repeated over and over? You may recall this place because we've been here before in the, in the Abraham narrative. In chapter 13 of Genesis, having parted ways with Lot, Abraham was in Canaan. And God said to him, look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and west. All the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. After God said this, Abraham pitched his tent. Where? near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron. This, we're told, is to be the land of promise. And it's this very spot where Abraham buys a plot to bury Sarah. He secures the deeds and he buries her. Now, for ancient people at the time, there was great significance in the place where you buried your dead. Burying your family in your ancestry burial grounds was a really cherished tradition. It was a way of honouring their ancestors and and, um, offering continuity for their kin. Still important for us today too, isn't it? In chapter 12, when Abraham was first called to follow God, notice this, the Lord specifically says, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Abraham wasn't just called to follow God, he was called to leave behind his gods, his inheritance, his identity. And so now as he lays his wife's body to rest in the land of Canaan, Abraham is burying her in the land of promise, disconnecting permanently from his ancestral and spiritual roots, signifying to us his total commitment to God's plans. There's a story about a group of missionaries in the late 1700s, early 1800s, who were called the one-way missionaries. They were called this because as they set off to the far-flung corners of the world to share the gospel with isolated communities, they bought a one-way ticket. And instead of using a suitcase to pack their very few earthly possessions, they used a coffin. They said goodbye to their families, going with a total commitment to the tribes of people they were going to share the gospel with, knowing they'd never return home. A.W. Milne was one of these missionaries and he set sail for a place now called Vanuatu in the South Pacific. 
fully aware that headhunters there had martyred every missionary before him in that place. Mill didn't fear for his life because he'd already died to himself. His coffin was packed. And for 35 years, he lived among that tribe. When he died, they buried him in the middle of the village in his coffin. And on the tombstone, they wrote, when he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. Abraham left his father's household as a one-way missionary. He left behind his security and his gods to become a new nation, a new place, to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to the world. His wife had died and he's advancing in years and though they've not taken possession of the promised land, he lays his roots in this small plot that he now owns. God's promises haven't been fully realised, but they are nudging in the right direction. And trusting in the faithfulness of God, Abraham remains totally committed. And we're invited to live with that same commitment. We're not called to the perfect life. Abraham has testified to that. But we are called to live with undivided commitment to God, trusting God as Abraham did, relying on his faithfulness to us. It's really important to remember what we learnt last week. God provides a sacrifice. But keeping that with us and keeping that in mind, we're now going to focus our attention on chapter 24, where we see that Abraham's total commitment flows through to active participation. So let's return to the text now. If you're at home, flick over to chapter 24. And for you guys in the room, it'll come on the screen in a moment. But first, let me set the scene. Abraham is old, really old by this stage. And Isaac, the son of promise, is unmarried. In order for there to be a nation built on Abraham's descendants, Isaac is going to need to marry and have offspring of his own. So I'm going to read a small section of chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. It's a long chapter, and there's heaps to learn from it. But I'm going to narrow our focus to this. Trusting in God's faithfulness leads Abraham to active participation. Beginning at verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abram said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. 
Okay, so the events in chapter 24 sit between the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham. And what's at stake here is the fulfillment of God's promises. I've said we're transitioning from Abraham to Isaac as the patriarch, but Isaac needs to marry. And I want you to notice with me that Abraham actively works toward that end. Abraham is too old to venture out, and Isaac needs to stay in the land of promise. So he enlists the help of his servant. He sends him to my country, to my relatives, for a wife for my son. The narrator here is focused on the line of promise, making it clear that Isaac must not marry a Canaanite woman, but instead a woman from Abraham's line. Now, on many occasions in the Abraham story, God spoke directly to Abraham. At times, he even gave him clear instructions. But in this instance, there's no explicit command. Instead, Abraham is actively participating in God's plans by slipping behind the movements of God. He knows the line of promise is intended to come through his family, and so he's sending his servant back to his homeland for Isaac's wife. And we can see, can't we, that Abraham is confident he's acting according to the will of God because he assures his servant that God's angel will go ahead of him. Abraham is orchestrating the events, but he is clearly, intentionally working toward God's plans. But even still, the servant asks, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me? And Abraham acknowledges the possibility. Well, if she's unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. And as you read on in chapter 24, you'll see this relationship unfold between human decisions that are real and authentic, but the always present hand of God bringing about his plans and purposes. So for example, further on in chapter 24, God does lead the servant to find Rebecca. She's clearly shown to us to be the chosen one to replace Sarah as the new matriarch of God's people. But Rebecca is given the choice. In verse 58, Rebecca is asked, will you go with this man? To which she independently and decisively replies, I will go. Chapter 24 shows us how the divine will is paired with human activity to achieve the purposes of God. Abraham fully trusts in God's faithfulness and from his experiences he knows that his best efforts, his biggest failures have not endangered the promises of God and so he's free to participate in God's plans. Abraham wants to follow God, to be behind his angels, not overtaking his pace or his path, but working toward God's end. I mean, here's the alternative, right? Abraham's old, he's blessed in every way. We read that in verse 1. Things have pretty much happened as God had promised. And if this were you, wouldn't you be the tiniest bit tempted to sit back quietly see out the rest of your life, perhaps be a little fatalistic, contemplative in these final days. God seemed to work things out with or without me, for me, despite me. Either way, he's faithful. So I'm going to recline and retire 
and trust that he'll continue to work things out. No, instead, trusting in God's faithfulness, Abraham actively participates in the plans and purposes of God. He serves him humbly because he's seen that God is in control. But he does not give up his obedient response. God had called Abraham to go in chapter 12. And he went, his feet, his family, physically moving away from his father's household. Now, it's a mystery to us, isn't it, how God seems to choose to work, always totally in control, but giving us a real role to play. Ephesians 2.10, which addresses you and I, says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, it's true we could be in danger of overestimating our own importance, but I think it's equally problematic to ignore our purposed involvement in the work of God, to bring blessing to all people. And so the question is, the hardest part is, how do I know what God wants me to do? Simply put, God calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. And these commands should guide and instruct everything we do, every decision, every encounter. But when it comes to moment-to-moment decisions, or even good versus good decisions, you know those ones, how do we consciously and confidently know we're participating in God's plans, moving behind God in the right direction? Well, here's a few examples that might help us learn the answer. You've probably heard of IJM, International Justice Mission. They were featured last week as one of our mission and aid partners. They're a global organisation committed to ending modern slavery, just a small task they've undertaken. They've got a focused strategy of working to restore and rescue victims of slavery and to restrain the activity of slavery by repairing and strengthening local criminal justice systems. And you can imagine that at times their work is incredibly practical, like training local police forces. At times it would be really technical as they draft laws to put before government. And I know that at many times it is gruelling and physical. This is active participation. But for IJM, their overriding strategy is prayer. The staff begin every day with 30 minutes of stillness and prayer before God. And globally, they stop for 30 minutes every lunchtime to pray for their upcoming operations. And their biggest annual event is their annual prayer gathering. They recognise that God is the God of justice. It's his plan and desire to see these people restored, found, rescued. So they, they seek only to slip behind the work in the heart of the Father. Active participation, paired with divine will to achieve the purposes of God. And so they're urgent but not panicked and they're totally committed to the cause, relying on God for strength and direction. If you own an organisation, and I know many of you at Roseville do, Have you prayerfully considered how your work efforts 
could slip behind the movements of God. Well, here's another example. My crazy, smart friend, Louise. She grew up locally. In fact, uh, for a very short time, we went to primary school together. And she and her husband had been on various mission trips together, and God had impressed upon them the dire situation for many who face economic disadvantage around the world. And so they've decided as a couple to make all of their household decisions according to what might help them address the issue of global poverty. Louise now works in blockchains. You'll be very thankful to know I'm not going to try and attempt to explain what that is. But I do know that her work is focused on transparent supply chains so that people at every stage of product development are protected from exploitation. And naturally, this protects the income of those at the bottom of the chain. As a family, they've moved to three different states. They've bought and sold property. They've chosen schools for their kids and moved their kids out of schools. All the same fairly pedestrian decisions that we face at different times. But they filter it through this question. Will this help us better address the issues of poverty? At St Andrews Roseville, we're all about discipleship. So we filter all our practical decisions through this question. Will this help us grow as disciples of Jesus and help us make disciples of Jesus? Do you have a God-given passion that could, you could use to filter all your practical decisions? Now, of course, the problem with examples is that you have, you have your own unique situations and purposes. And there's no one way to participate in God's plans. I've seen it look as ordinary, but just as committed to God when a family I know made the decision to buy a car with heaps of extra seats so they could always take a carload of kids to youth each week. Or a lady I know who waited for a rental property with a big enough lounge room to always host small group. A mate of mine has lived with deep depression for many, many years, but he's still persevering in the faith. He feels overcome with inactivity, but his fellowship and his friendship is such a blessing to me, and he's still actively participating in God's work as he shares his struggles with his brothers and his sisters. And I agree with what's been said from this platform before. Faithful and loving actions of ordinary people in their local community are the best witnesses to the glory of God. Don't discount the value of your active participation. And of course, the driving principle is this. Trusting in the faithfulness of God leads to active participation humbly serving God where we're at with what we have, knowing that our best efforts and stew our worst stuff-ups will not derail God and his purposes and his plans, but he does delight to use us. And Abraham was an excellent example of this. We're going to return to the text again now, reading a very small section from chapter 25. And this is where the story of Abraham ends, but of course, God's story continues. Abraham dies blessed, but God's promise and presence carries on to the next generation. Inheritance and fulfillment 
becoming intertwined. Let's read from chapter 25, beginning at verse 5. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. So Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. He gave gifts to his other sons, but he ensures that the son of promise inherits all that he has. And to make certain of this, did you notice, he passes it all on before he dies, not hoarding his blessings for himself, but having received them abundantly, he openly and willingly and definitively passes it all on. Abraham had not seen the promises fully realised, but he dies in faith, the same way that he lived. Was it worth it? What did his faith achieve? Well, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel, became the father of all who believe. From his holy line comes Jesus Christ. And you can see this highlighted in the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. All who trust in Jesus are adopted into this family line, receiving the inheritance, the blessings first deposited in Abraham. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so we leave the Abraham story confident that God will continue to advance his purposes. The blessings of God that Abraham so abundantly enjoyed are passed down through his line, now fully available, perfectly available, to all adopted into God's family through Jesus. This series has highlighted through Abraham's life, the life of a disciple who trusts in God's faithfulness. And it leads to a life totally committed to God, actively participating in his purposes, with a readiness to pass on all that he receives, all the while fully relying on him. And Abraham's faith stands as a challenge to us today. It's true that we've received greater and more precious promises than Abraham did, salvation through Jesus Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit in ways that the Old Testament saints could only dream of. And yet we too know what it is to see only in part, to know only in part, to experience only in part all that God has promised. We too must live by faith, trusting in God's faithfulness. We live in the gap of the now and not yet, joys and sorrows, challenges and victories, health and sickness. Reality is both painful and joyful. 
there is the promise of a glorious future with God and we move toward it in faith, fully committed, actively participating, receiving and passing on the blessings of God. Let me pray. God, thank you for the rich and challenging example you have given us in Abraham. Thank you for revealing yourself to him, for building for yourself a people whom you love and adopting us into that blessed family through Jesus. We give you all the thanks and praise. Amen. Thanks, Ness. I've got the, uh, the church uh, text message phone for your questions, and so that number should be appearing up on the screen now, and feel free uh, to text it in. It's actually a couple have arrived already, uh, including some compliments from John Kay from Canberra, so he, he's, in, he's encouraged. <laughs> Ness, um, the question here is, um, Abraham ensured that he passed on all that he received from God to his son Isaac. Should wealthy Christians do likewise uh, by padding all their wealth to their heirs? Mm. Well, if my dad's listening, the answer is yes. A big yes, no. I, I think, you know, as we read the Old Testament, there's something quite physical about um, the pictures that we see. But the blessing that Abraham has, that he really also passes on, that God passes on to Isaac, is a relationship with God and to be in the presence of and to know um, God. And that is actually really what is um, the precious blessing that Abraham passes down. And yes, you should pass that on. Yeah. I agree. Um, if you had to decide between two choices that were both good and neither were better or worse for the kingdom of God, would it be reasonable to say that it doesn't matter to God which one you choose? Yeah, I think so. Um, I've done this myself, and uh, I think we all, all have had examples of this, but uh, I faced a good versus good decision, a godly versus godly decision when I made the decision to come here to Roseville because um, I knew that it was good and godly to stay at my previous church. I knew that it was good and godly to come here. Um, and so I couldn't filter it that way, and I think that's what I find challenging in life when um, you know, there are some obvious decisions um, between something that's great and something that's a really bad idea. But they're the harder ones when it's good versus good. And you still want to be um, available to God to, um, to be working toward how he wants you to work, toward his promises or purposes. And in that moment, I think uh, I came to the uh, conclusion that actually um, whatever was going to expand my faith, uh, whatever was going to grow my faith was the right decision. And that could have been staying. I felt like it was coming here, and so I did. Um, but, yeah, I think there are times where good versus good, and maybe God would have used the decision either way, um, however he wanted to, I'm sure. But I think we're still faced with the reality of having to choose between two things. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, last question here. There are actually more questions than, I, than we've got time for. But uh, how do I discover God's mission for my life? Hmm. Yeah, look, I think basically the love the Lord your God and love your neighbour is our mission um, for our lives. And it's our mission as the church uh, to love uh, people and to help others love God too as we love him. Uh, so I think that's basically our mission. 
But I think there are times where you have a unique purpose um, or God has impressed something upon you, uh, like making Jesus known, making Jesus public. And that's um, a specific thing that can filter then really practical decisions. Uh, so I think if in doubt, love is, is the guiding principle. Um, but I think there are people that feel set, called to certain things and it's good to listen to that. Thank you so much, Ness.